The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is a complement to the Numinous School, my online intuition development program for people who want their self-awareness to serve a greater good. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and today I'm speaking with Lisa Renee Hall. Lisa is a speaker, a writer, and a tech industry veteran. I first became aware of her work when she introduced me to the notion of social media algorithms as inherently racist, and she taught me about the importance of sometimes going on a bit of a like fast, meaning stop clicking like and heart and wows and laughs and angry faces and see what happens to my feed. But I was particularly fascinated when I learned that Lisa has been the organist at hundreds of funerals. I connected with Lisa online. She was at home in Toronto, Ontario. So Lisa, I'd like to start with Desiree Attaway's question. What identities do you lead with? All right. So before getting my DNA ancestry report done, I um, identified myself as a first generation Canadian of Jamaican descent with French and West African ancestry. But my DNA report came in, which identified which West African nation, although I don't know the ethnic group. And then Great Britain showed up heavily. over and above every other European identity. So now I identify myself as a first-generation Canadian of Jamaican descent with British, French, Finnish, and Nigerian ancestry. (laughs) (laughs) That's so great. You know, um, so my ancestry report just came in this morning, and uh, I've heavily identified as Scottish because that's my matrilineage and the only one I know. And anytime someone would ask about my father's background, I don't know. And so I'd say, well, I come from a long line of bastards, but this, <laughs> the, this is what I come from. And it turns out I got my ancestor DNA. That long line of bastards is all uh, British, nor- Northern Great Britain and Germany. Wow. So as I was saying to my husband, it's just colonizers all the way down. There's, it's, it's, it's very different, hey, to sort of step back and go, oh, the stories I've told, the identity that I've, uh, that has been crafted by myself and culture, it's not yes. what I thought it was. How does that sit with you, this oh, well, it, identity? Yeah, it's the same thing for me because my mother's maiden name is French. And so I've been able to trace her French ancestry to a French ancestor who, and it's actually a tragic story. He, well, tragic from my standpoint as a family member, as a descendant, but others may see it differently. Um, When Haiti claimed, when Haiti was granted its independence in 1804, the first thing that the president did was issue a um, decree that any white person left on the island was to be killed. Mm-hmm. And so they started with the men and then eventually expanded it to women and children. So any, so the French white people on Haiti who are left behind had to flee. Mm-hmm. The rich French who are called les grands blancs mm-hmm. could afford the voyage back to France or to the United States. So if you have a French last name in the United States, chances are you are one of the descendants of these uh, French, uh, well, white Haitians, let's call them that. Okay. Uh, Those who were not wealthy but were white, called les petits blancs, had to go to the closest Caribbean islands. So the two closest, the three closest were um, the Spanish-controlled colonies of of, um, Cuba and Puerto Rico. And there's a lot of research around the French. Anyone who has a French last name on Cuba or Puerto Rico is a descendant of one of these, of Les Petits Blancs. And then the other closest Caribbean island was the English-controlled colony of Jamaica, which is where my ancestor went. Mm. So I know that lineage. So that was my sixth or fifth great-grandfather all the way down to my mother and now me. Mm. 
Yet when I did the DNA ancestry report, French doesn't show up. Wow. Now there's some reasons why. Now there's some legal restrictions with DNA collection in France, which <laughs> does explain why, you know, there's not like they can't, if, if there is French ancestry, they throw you into Great Britain or. Right. You know, so I noticed that in Ancestry DNA, that particular yes. company's results does lump a few other countries. That's so interesting that that's more of a modern day legal yes. issue. Oh, so interesting. Yes. But with that said, when my DNA report came out and I, I saw that um, 41%, okay, so seven, 41% of my identity is linked to what is known today as Nigeria. Mm-hmm. So that's my West African ancestry. Other West African um, countries show up, but the dominant is Nigeria. And now I have to find mm-hmm. out which ethnic group. And then, mm-hmm. oh my goodness, which helps me answer your question. It's okay. So 72% is West African. And then the other 27% is Northern European. Ooh. So, and, and that comprises of Britain, Scotland, and, and then Finland showed up for some reason. But my point here is that I have to contend with the fact that I have the blood of the oppressed and the blood of the oppressor mm-hmm. running through my veins. Mm-hmm. How do I reconcile that? And I know who my, aunt, my British ancestor is on my father's side of the family, John mm. Barnes. And, you know, and then he was a white man from Britain. Who was living mm-hmm. in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. And so I know his name. I know my next, you know, his child, Barnett Barnes, who had Richard Emmanuel Barnes, who had J.N. Barnes, who had James Barnes, which is my grandfather, and then mm. my father, Audley Barnes. So I know this. Wow. So my point along what you're saying is that as you come to terms with the fact that you come from a long, long line of colonizers, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, with no other surprise, like, oh my goodness, I have to contend with the fact that I'm a child of the colonized and the colonizer. Mm-hmm. Where the hell do I go from here? Mm-hmm. And Who- so many people have this experience now that yes. we have this information. Uh, it's, it really does leave us, I think, at a crossroads of creating new cultures or hopefully, you know, this is the hope, right? Is that there will be more compassion for each other and for otherness and for difference. This is the hope. That is the hope. And and I, I tell my patrons in my community, my exclusive community, that if we can accept the diversity within ourselves, it makes it easier for us to accept the diversity in others. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And and so now that I see that I have six ancestries running through my veins, mm-hmm. part of me is, you know, I want to research the cultures, the folklore, the mythologies of these different ancestries. Mm-hmm. And then eventually I want to call one or two of them mine so that mm-hmm. I align with that and that it becomes part of my identity, that what was my ancestry before colonization touched it? Mm-hmm. And how can I synchronize that into the identity I have right now, which is being a first-generation Canadian? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's big work. It's big work. It's huge. So you mentioned your um, uh, Patreon com- community, and uh, in great part, that comes from your writing. And you're really somewhat of a thought leader in term in several different sectors, I would say, including, you know, uh, women, women of color in tech, in uh, um, uh, business, um, with creative inquiry, leadership positions, that sort of thing. And one of the things that you wrote and posted once was a small story or post on Facebook about being the organist at strangers' funerals. And I was so captivated by that imagery and fascinated. And so I'd like to give readers a little bit of context here. So um, first of all, could you tell us a little bit about what it was like for you as a young person in church? What was your relationship with God like? You you mentioned in that post and on your website that you became the organist at 17. And I was already a little (laughs) struck by that because I thought 17 at church, you know, th- this means there must have been real community there to keep right. you in church at that age. So can you take us to that time? Yeah, well, I'll be honest. It, it, if it wasn't for playing the organ, I would not have been in church. 
Mm. I'll tell you that Mm -hmm. one. And I think for a lot of uh, young people in that age bracket between 16, 17, until they go off to university, there has to be something to keep them tied to their church body because that's a, that's a time period when we're questioning. Mm -hmm. And so my mother was attending a very small church. It was probably 20 or 25 people in the congregation. And the woman who played the organ, and it was the only instrument in the church, she was sent off to the nursing home. She was older. And so someone said, well, we need, we, like, in, in these, like, people are, they, they don't want to sing their hymns a cappella. Okay. <laughs> they do not. <laughs> Partly because no one's singing four, par- four parts, you know, in the congregation. <laughs> but, you know, it's like that we have to have. So my mother said to the person who asked and it's like, or had made the, you know, we need to find someone. She's like, well, my daughter plays. And <laughs> so <laughs> my mother for a long time was my advocate because I was so shy and quiet as a child. Mm. And so I was taken to the instrument and it was an organ. And I was just like, well, I played the piano. I don't play the organ. And it was like, well, it can't be that different. You, you can play <laughs> this thing. And so I remember the first week I played and I did not play great, but I didn't play horribly because the organ, it's, the piano is just one set of keys. Mm-hmm. The organ, some organs, small organs have two set of keys, like two rows. The really big ones have like five or six. And each row gives you a different sound. Plus, there's the foot pedals. (laughs) I don't play piano because this already sounds overwhelming and stressful. Yeah. And so like, so you're playing with the feet, both feet. And you're playing with both hands on six or seven or five, not seven, but five manuals. Thankfully, this one had two manuals, two sets of keys, two rows of keys and the foot pedals. And there was no one, there's no YouTube at the time. So I can watch videos <laughs> to tell me how do I, <laughs> there's nothing, yeah. right? So I didn't play bad, but I didn't play good. And I remember, and this is where Curious Inquiry came into play because a man would criticize me every week. I was the only musician in the church. And every week he would come up to me and say, oh, you played horribly. You need to get lessons. And I, I really kept, hate that. Was he being jokey? I no. don't like that old man jokey. No, he was no, being really he was being Oh, really that's so serious. harsh. Oh. And I tried to be nice. And I tried to say, oh, yeah, you know, you're right. I don't play the Orion. <laughs> so I'm trying to be really nice. <laughs> but then my stomach, like my mom would drive into the parking lot and my stomach would just start like, you know, that mm. feeling in the stomach where it's like, oh, my goodness, mm. he's going to be there. And sure <laughs> enough, he came to me again to Chris. So I don't know why I did this. But he came to me yet again as I was packing away the organ and packing away the hymnal. And he said to me yet again, oh, you played horribly. You made so many mistakes. And I had every right, Carmen, to just say, like, F you. Like, yeah. sometimes a good expletive uttered <laughs> yes. purges the soul. <laughs> They're so- uttered often on this podcast. So, yes. Right. Yeah. So if I uttered it in the church, you know, lots yeah. of prayers for me. but. <laughs> Instead, I stood up and I pointed down, I pointed my hand down to the organ seat and I looked up and I said, can you show me how to do it better? He looked at me, he looked at the organ and he walked away. Yes. And and he never, he never, (laughs) ever said anything to me ever again. Well done, Lisa. (laughs) I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of 17 year old you. Yeah. And I don't know why, like the question came to mind. I I have no idea, but I think it's just encoded in me to do that. Mm -hmm. And so at 17 years old, I asked him the question and that was my first experience with curious inquiry Mm. because questions seem to interrupt behavior and interrupt the thought pattern. It's so true. It's so true. I want to ask you a bit more about what that process is like specifically. Um, So I'm going to circle back to it. I would like to know, do you still go to that same church? No, that church has grown and uh, it's um, merged with another church. No, I don't go to that one anymore. Oh, okay. But you, how, how many funerals would you say you've played at? Oh my goodness. Over a three year period, probably 150. Wow. So what have you learned attending the funerals of so many strangers? It's, it's fascinating because when I go, first of all, 
as an organist, sometimes you see me, sometimes you don't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you mm -hmm. just hear the instrument. Mm -hmm. In the church I play in with right now, I'm the only person on the platform whose back is to the congregation. Mm -hmm. Everyone else has to face them. So it's almost like I'm a silent participant or a silent observer. So mm -hmm. I go to these funerals and I'm listening to the stories that are being told of the dearly departed. Mm -hmm. uh, the oldest person who passed away that was in their 80s, the youngest was 21 mm. and he was murdered. Mm. So I hear the stories about these individuals. I hear how, you know, mom made a, or grandma made a great carrot cake every Christmas or in the Jamaican community, sorrel, which is a, a drink that is boiled and prepared every Christmas. Mm -hmm. uh, someone will go up there and read a poem. Maybe they'll have a, you know, oh, he had such a great sense of humor. <laughs> uh, so I hear all the stories about who this person is. But after attending so many funerals, I asked myself, is that the story that the deceased would tell about themselves? Mm -hmm. Would they stand there and say, I made a great carrot cake? <laughs> <laughs> would they? Mm. Would, would, would he say that, yeah, I was always so kind to my little sister? Like, would the, is that the story the person would tell? Mm. And so as an organist, I sit there and I ask myself, if that person could get out their coffin right now, which God forbid, don't do that. But <laughs> if they could, and they could tell people the story they want to be told about themselves, what would they say? Mm -hmm. And it was in that moment I said, you know what? I need to control a part of that story. Mm. Have you written your own eulogy? I have not, although my sister insists I should. Yeah. Do you do so? Do you now have a sense though of like like brass tacks here? Let's be honest. You've been yes. to lots. Do you lots. have a sense of this is how I want my funeral to be? Do you want a funeral? Right. And then those are the questions. Do I want an organist at a funeral? Um, <laughs> you know, and who do, yeah, I, do want? I want? Some stranger judging my youth. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> no, I'm just you know, you're but, there in loving support role, right? Yes, absolutely, yeah. and. <laughs> And, you know, and, and of course, you know, there's a way, you know, these are hymns that I'm playing, but I know that there's a lot of, uh, the, the, the organ can set the mood for the service. Mm -hmm. And so I have to be like really focused. I can't make mistakes. I don't want the family remembering, well, that organist made a, you know, mm -hmm. on the fourth measure of amazing grace. Like, yeah, it's a little too upbeat. Too upbeat. <laughs> right. So I don't want that to be the memory. Yeah. But I also sit back and I, and it's, um, Sure, I want to leave instructions for my family on what I want to happen. Mm -hmm. But the way I envision it is, you know, a bunch of, you know, you play videos of me speaking and doing what I have loved mm -hmm. to do. So mm -hmm. instead of flipping through a, a, a bunch of photos in, power, in, in um, PowerPoint, instead, maybe it's a video of Lisa who filmed her documentary and we grabbed a clip and we're playing mm -hmm. it now. Or that sitcom that Lisa starred in. Her mm. web sitcom will take a clip so we can show you how funny she was. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I envision with my funeral is just, or interviews I gave with CNN, CBC, and you name the outlet where I'm talking about something I'm passionate about. Mm -hmm. That's what I want people to see on the big screen when they're remembering my life. Mm -hmm. When you are at people's funerals and you're in that space, right? You're kind of doing a left brain, right brain thing. You're like aware of what needs to be happening and yes. timing and all of that. Yes. But you're also in flow because now you're good, right? <laughs> now you're good. So you're in that creative. Right. So in that flowing space, do you ever feel a presence or do you ever, you know, do you ever get chills? Do you ever feel like, wow, I can really feel the presence of the departed here? Or do you try to sort of stay outside of that? I, yeah, I, I, it's interesting. There was one funeral I played at where the person, who, the, the couple had been married for five years and he died suddenly. Mm. And I, I, you know, I, I really am detached from the service because I'm there to perform a particular service. Mm -hmm. And then I'm out. I don't hang around for the food and, you know, I'm out. Give me the mm -hmm. check. I'm gone. Mm -hmm. um, but for some, that service, I remember, and I think it's because the woman who lost her husband was my age. Mm. Then they had married, um, well, late in life. 
uh, you know, late thirties, early forties. And to see that she had five years with him mm-hmm. and she had waited 40 years for him. Mm-hmm. And that one hit me. That one hit me. Cause I'm like, you know, she's my age. I wait, you know, suppose that could be me. I wait all my life. This month, you know, I I didn't get married in my twenties. I I get married in my forties. And then we spend four, it was actually four and a half years. Mm. And that one just like, oh my God. And the other one that hit me was um, the 21 year old that was murdered. Mm -hmm. And he, apparently he just was one of those good Samaritan types. Oh. And then to hear his father yelling into the microphone saying, he was murdered. Mm. He was murdered. And I, I just like, I sat there and I was just like, oh, I can't even imagine what that's, I cannot. He was a twin. Oh. And now that twin, like, it just like that comes into play. And, mm. and, and so I think the only connection that I derive from these stories is when I start to reflect on how much that person is like me Mm -hmm. and how much they're like my situation and it's then when i start cluing in and it's like oh my goodness Mm -hmm. then i have Mm -hmm. to wipe my tears quickly and you know make sure my hands aren't shaky as i play you know amazing grace for the 100th time Mm -hmm. so it's Mm -hmm. um but what a privilege to witness people in this very tender and liminal space, right? Where the, yes. their dead is still very present to them. That's so and, true. Or to us, you know, in the unseen realms that we may not be aware of, they're very present and they're being really praised in all of this grief. What a gift to be able to witness that so many times over and have it, you know, in probably in many ways shape how you're approaching your own death, I would imagine. Yes. And, and, and a lot, and and something you said just triggered something. Is it's there's also in the room a, various beliefs that emerge, mm-hmm. and so then I wonder how does the family comfort themselves? So you'll have some who believe that grandma is up in heaven now looking down upon us, mm-hmm. and then you have some who believe that when the dead pass on, they are dead. They are sleeping. They're not anywhere floating around. They're not looking from heaven down on us. And so I sit there and those beliefs come out in the, in the same service. Mm-hmm. So now I ask myself, I'm like, how is this family going to comfort each other when they have different beliefs about where the dead go once mm-hmm. they pass on? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's also part of the thinking process too, as I um, mm-hmm. continue playing. Well, and it's so interesting because they may not share a lot of things, but they're sharing this experience. Yes. So this memory, those times, that song on the organ after, you know, so, so those things must become very important touchstones when you don't share beliefs, those experiences that you shared must become even more potent, I would imagine. Yes. I was thinking about, um, sort of that right brain creative process, uh, you as a performer, you also have... Uh, and this is sort of related to the the curious inquiry, uh, but you have a curious process, which is of waking up at 4.30 a.m. <laughs> to write every single day. Yeah. And it, you call it expressive writing. And I have a lot of questions about this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the first one, I, I don't know if this was just um, the way it happened, uh, and maybe it's different for everyone, or maybe you feel very strongly, but why 4.30 a.m.? Yeah, that's, um, that's a question I get asked a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's, uh, there's, some, there's Chinese medicine that states that if you are awoken at certain times of the night, it means a message is trying to come through. Mm-hmm. So between the hours of 3 a.m. and 5 a.m., it means that the divine is trying to communicate with you. Uh, so from a spiritual standpoint, that would be the reason why. Uh, 4.30 a.m. for me and why I arise at that time, it's just, there's something magical about that moment. Because by the time I hit my desk, after I take care of my biology needs and get coffee, then it's almost minutes to five. And it's still, it's it's, depending on the time of year, it's either pitch dark or it's Mm -hmm. now twilight moving into dawn. Mm-hmm. And, and seeing 
the changing sky as I'm writing out my words. It's just something very magical to it. Mm-hmm. So why 4.30 a.m.? You know, I, I believe that that's where I get my messages the best from, from God. Mm-hmm. I, um, and then it, it's like a, my own personal trinity between God, myself as a recorder, and then my soul all working in concert to give mm-hmm. me those words. Can you, I, I love it when people start sharing their different uh, sort of, you know, the, 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 the um, schemas they have for their spiritual life. Could you describe how you sense or orient differently? Um, like, what's the difference between your soul and God? My soul is my inner, it, it's, it's what's happening with me inside. Mm-hmm. And I sense that God is what's out of me outside of me. Mm -hmm. And so when I write, it helps to harmonize the, it, it harm writing harmonizes what my soul is trying to express versus, and, and what God is trying to express. It helps me to, to bring together both and, and that's why I write expressively, because then I can just write what's coming, blah, 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 unedited, uncensored, unfiltered. And then when I look back on my writings, then I can now clean it up a little bit and, you know, make it more coherent. Mm-hmm. So as the idea, as the messages keep coming, I just write, 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 write. Mm-hmm. So I'm able to do 750 words in under 20 minutes. Why? Because I'm not censoring myself. I'm not stopping. I'm just... Blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Are there themes or kind of seasons? You've done this for over a year now. And so what are you noticing in terms of the themes or the motifs? So when I first started this process, it was January 3rd, 2017. I poured myself out of bed at 4.30 (laughs) a.m. And it it was following all the funerals I had attended. And I was like, what is the story that Lisa wants to tell about Lisa? And I said, well, after seven nonfiction books, maybe it's time I write my first work of fiction. Mm. And I've had this idea in my head for seven years. I'm like, maybe it will become the next Harry Potter mm-hmm. or the next Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. And so for the first 59 days, I wrote at 4.30 a.m. And I got one chapter out each morning. Mm. The plots, the characters, you know, got it out. But on the 60th morning, I woke up. And I had this, this I had a professional setback that was nagging. So I said, let me just write about this. And I wrote felt a little bit better. Next morning, I continued writing about that professional step back. And I kept writing about more memories that started to come up. So I went from writing to publish to writing to heal. Mm -hmm. Because then it became, oh, let me write the memoir about my 15 years working in tech as a liberal arts graduate, Mm -hmm. (laughs) black female. Black female liberal arts graduate. Like I'm totally an outsider. Mm-hmm. So I wrote my first memoir about my 15 years in tech. And that was part of the healing process too. Mm-hmm. It must've been hard to be that much of an outsider and constantly proving. I mean, it's just a fishbowl for freaking white male capitalist society. Yes. And you're just like, Hey, everybody. <laughs> Let me see if I can swim with the sharks for 15 years. And, and related to that, I, I protected my secret by being a bully. And the secret was that I had a history degree and I was coding web pages. Hmm. <laughs> and I noticed early the reaction people would give me when they found out I did not have a con- con- computer science degree and I did not have an engineering degree. Hmm. So I protected my secret. Mm-hmm. by ensuring that like I was a bully like I I wrote the memoir and I was just like Lisa you were a bully and so you were keeping people away from yes. you by doing that mm-hmm. and so you were bullying them by being what sarcastic or <laughs> like how, how would you were you in supervision supervisory role I was in supervisory role so I would protect my resources that was the one thing I mm-hmm. always that was one thing I always did because the only person I found would protect me would be the programmers who reported to me. Hmm. And it was interesting. So if other project managers would come, I would like, you know, protect my resources. Like, no, you can't have them. Hmm. Um, other ways I did that is 
I would, <laughs> I would, I would document everything. Every mm-hmm. conversation was, if we had a conversation in the hallway, I went to my email and I documented it. That doesn't seem like bullying. That seems so protective. It is protective. And then what would end up happening is we'd be in meetings and, and some people had a history of trying to sabotage me. Mm-hmm. And then I'd pull out that email and I would inside, I would be smiling as I watched <laughs> them stutter <laughs> right. over the evidence that I've pulled out. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes did you use that? Did you weaponize that? Yes, of course. Oh, yeah. So it wasn't just self-defense all the time. No, it was just like this glee and pleasure and seeing the person squirm and, oh, I was horrible in my 20s. Is it? Oh, okay. I'm glad you're in your 20s. I also, (laughs) I'm very squirmy about when I was a manager, just of a restaurant in, in, I shouldn't say just of a restaurant. You're a manager of people. Yes. And they're all people. So it yeah. doesn't matter where you were in in our social hierarchy. I mean, I was a manager of people, obviously too young, um, because I'm yes. so squirmy when I when I've come across, you know, friends of or relatives of people I used to manage. I'm like, the first thing I do is like, I please apologize to them for me. I was such a bitch. Right. I was so stressed out. I'm really sorry. And it's, it's hard, right. To have mm-hmm. that history of just knowing like, wow, I, I had a lot of inner work yes. to do to handle that. Oh, yeah. I did as well. I, I, I you know, I, I was given a lot of, I was managing projects in the millions of dollars I had high visibility to the company's VPs and presidents because of, because presidents, because of the type of projects I was working on. So this give, gave me an elated sense that, um, you know, my ego was inflated, right? Mm-hmm. And then I was also, I was trying to remain hidden in this male dominated field, but because I was unique, I kept being exposed to people who were like, oh my goodness, you're in tech. Oh, here's an award. Oh my goodness, here, you know, you, you get an award for innovation for the, and it was just my presence alone. So it gave me this, you know, the sense that like I was invincible. Right. So a bit self-inflated there. Self-inflated. And so I brought that into the workplace. I brought that into everything I did. I didn't care if I railroaded. I didn't care. It was all about protecting my secret and protecting my identity as a techie person. I loved that identity. And how did that come to an end? Did it? <laughs> it has and it is and it's um, <laughs> continuing. Yeah, it, um, when I started questioning why I was an overgiver, actually it came to an end when I broke up with a guy who I thought was my boyfriend. <laughs> I thought he was my boyfriend, mm-hmm. but um, he showed otherwise, and I was heartbroken. Mm-hmm. After three months of getting, you know, I was heartbroken. Mm-hmm. And so my mother had met him, and we were, we went, my mom and I went to go get ice cream, and she asked me for the umpteenth time about him. I said, we broke up. And I described to her what led me to break it off with him. And she listened to me. And as we're licking her ice cream, vanilla ice cream, she said to me, oh, he sounds like your biological father. It's the same things he would do. And I sat there and I was like, I, I don't have a relationship with my biological father. I met him three times in my life. I don't have a relationship with him. And so I sat there and I was like, how could I attract as a dating partner men who are just like my biological father? Who I don't even know. Who I don't even know. Yeah. So I started writing about that Mm. to heal around that. Mm. And as I started healing around that, the layers around my hyper attachment to my identity started to peel away. Hmm. Hmm. And one of them was my tech ID, my tech identity. Hmm. Hmm. So are you thinking of going back to the fiction? Because that sounds kind of, is it fantasy? Is it futurism? What is it? I'm curious about this because there's this, there's this tech thread that's going through and, and, you know, there's, so there's some unpacking and unhooking from some of the oppressive aspects of that, but you obviously have a love you know, that comes intuitively. This, it just comes to you coding and stuff. So I'm curious about 
when Lisa's story is going to come into publication. Right, right. <laughs> What's going on in her head? What right. is that? And I, I, and, and, and I think that's what it is. I believe that my years in tech was meant to prepare me to finally use my strategies on my own brand. Mm. So for years, I've used the coding and the internet marketing, all that I've learned over the last 15, 18 years, whatever it was, I've used that for my clients in helping them become unknown to well-known. Mm-hmm. I've used that to help companies save millions of dollars on training costs, you know? And mm-hmm. so part of writing to heal has been to look at my years in tech and not, and ask my, was it a waste of time? Mm-hmm. Because now I've come full circle, right? I graduated mm-hmm. from university. I thought I was going to be a freelance journalist. Mm-hmm. I, and, and there's two paths I could have taken. I could have continued freelance journalism, writing for newspapers and magazines. <laughs> Where are they today? Yeah. What is, what, you know, what's the health <laughs> of newspapers and magazines today? Yeah. But instead, I taught myself HTML to launch my online magazine. And that opened up the door to a career in tech. Mm-hmm. And now here I am full circle where I'm getting paid to write, mm-hmm. to write about my own experiences and to help people to ident- you know, to question their, their views around identity and tech. So full circle. So, so in all that, I'm like, okay, so why, why did I just spend 15 years in tech? Why? Mm-hmm. Why? And why? So that I can use everything I've learned and now finally focus it on my message. Mm-hmm. What's your message? So my message is, uh, they all relate. They're threefold. Actually, they all relate. So one is to use the art of curious inquiry, asking yourself the right questions so you get the right answers. Uh, So that's useful when we're talking about skin color and views around diversity. My second message is to use raw writing as a way to heal. And as a way to write about your, and, and for clients that I work with, where we do raw writing, their posts become more, come deeper. Mm-hmm. And then they share it. And all of a sudden they go from two or three likes to 50, a hundred. And they're like, oh my goodness, this works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, but that's, that's because you went through a period of raw writing in mm-hmm. order to find out what your heart wants to say. Mm-hmm. And then my third message is around ancestry and digging into your past and discovering the family history, the rich family history, so that you divorce yourself from whiteness and adopt the ancestry that is much richer in folklore, mythologies, and so on. Mm-hmm. So last fall, it was about October, November 2017, I saw a post that you made um, on social media about the inherent racism in social media algorithms. And one of the uh, little tips that you said we could do to um, increase the diversity of uh, our feed was to stop liking posts and instead comment only on the ones that really resonate. And that this would change, you know, do it for a little while, you know, do it for a month. And and suddenly you'd find that the algorithm didn't really know what to make of you anymore. Because (laughs) you weren't sort of giving it little cookies every time you expressed a like, and you would, it would start just trying to throw shit at the wall. Like, what, what do you like now, Carmen? What do you like? So I reposted this and said, okay, I'm doing it. And I went on a like fast. And I will say this, I, as a person who works with the subconscious mind mm-hmm. and with subtle somatics and mm-hmm. trauma resolution, it was so good to <laughs> see how much activation and agitation I would feel at not liking some of my friends' posts. Now, wow. of course, I started to go, okay, well, I do want to see my husband all the time and I do want to <laughs> see, so I'm just going to keep getting little hearts here and there. But it, it was a profound experience for a week of just finding a new regulation and just letting things go by without giving somebody a little boost, right? right? It was like, oh my gosh, this is so physical in my body. But what happened, it's just like going off sugar, right? It's like mm-hmm. it really hurts for a while. And then I just didn't even want social 
anymore. And we have um, a social media, like we've got Circle with Disney because we have a teenager. And so it's this, you know, you get the little box and then you can control every single device wow. related to your Wi-Fi. And you can say every single app, like I only want 15 minutes of Instagram a day let's Ooh. say. And I want bedtime to be at 8.30. It's actually quite funny when I'm like scrolling through something and I open a page and Circle comes up and says, looks like it's your bedtime <laughs> and at like 8.30 on a weekday. I'm like, oh, oh. This I is love good. that. Yeah. But this is what happened though, was that it, it was kind of a nice gateway experience to just go on a like fast and notice these, all these people that I don't yes. know right. in my friend list and going, who, what are my friends? Who are these people? And also where are my friends? Why is Facebook so confused about who I'm actually friends with? Well, something happened along the way. Yeah. And now my algorithm is so far away from who I am as a person in my real life that it was pretty easy to just be like, okay, so Facebook, an hour a week of you is just fine. So please, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about how the algorithms and social media are inherently racist? Yeah. Uh, so there's, so the, the first thing is that the algorithms is a mystery. It's a mystery. There, people are guessing what goes into building your algorithmic profile. That's such a thing. So it's, um, it's a number of things. It, um, it judges, one, your reactions. So what are you clicking on? Uh, there was a point in time where one of my friends, Leila Saad, had mm -hmm. a post removed. She had 10 posts removed from her profile in a span of a, an hour or two. What? Yeah. So then I posted about that because she was, we were on WhatsApp and then I was taking her messages and posting on my page. And because of the situation, people kept posting angry reactions because uh -huh. they were angry what was happening with Layla. All of a sudden, my, my news feed changed. And now all I'm seeing are angry people. Mm. <laughs> so one way the algorithm builds its profile is who's reacting and what are they reacting to if it's a lot of laughs you get or wows then you're going to start to see funny things in your feed the other hmm. thing that it judges is how long you stay on a post so if you're scrolling 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 all of a sudden you stop then the seconds you stay stopped goes into your algorithm algorithm ap let's call it ap okay, algorithm yeah. <laughs> into yeah. your ap and then it says okay she spent five seconds on that. So let's show her more of that. Mm -hmm. And so that's another way. So all these different factors go into building your AP. Mm -hmm. Now, what I'm finding is the algorithm also seems to prop up white supremacy. Because even though, now I'm not claiming to be white. I'm claiming that white is in me based on what I know about my history and based on what came back from my DNA profile. A third of my DNA is from a white, numerous <laughs> white ancestors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I believe I'm qualified to comment about my whiteness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the algorithm has built a profile about me based on being a black female. So it assumes that on Thursday night, I'm watching Scandal because mm. all the black women in my profile who are connected to me are watching Scandal and are talking about it. The only TV I watch is The Walking Dead. That's it. Mm -hmm. Everything else, you know, maybe when I'm 80. Right. But <laughs> very different from Scandal. Very different from Scandal. <laughs> mm -hmm. I watch Star Trek. That's the only other TV I watch too, Star Trek. If it's on TV, I'm, watch I'm dropping everything. <laughs> Carmen, I'll say I'm rescheduling. I'm watching Star Trek. <laughs> but um, but it, it, it makes assumptions. And so one of the things that it seems to not like is when a person of color, especially a black person, because that's my experience, uses the word white in their profile, in their status update. Mm -hmm. And it seems like no matter, because this is what happened to Layla. She used white in several updates and i mean they weren't terrible they weren't you know but because the word white was there being used by what appears to be a black woman boom it's blocked i mean it's removed as well so 
if, and, and I've seen situations where a black person is reported on using the term white in their profile and the, and the status is deleted and the person is locked out of their account for a period mm-hmm. of time. But mm-hmm. I've also seen situations where a white person is using um, derogatory, like using a profile, like it's just a disgustingly racist page. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And no matter how many times it's reported, the message mm-hmm. comes back saying, not everything that is upsetting is bad in the right. Facebook community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Really? Mm-hmm. Someone calling Michelle Obama gorilla and posting a picture? Like that's mm-hmm. not... So mm-hmm. it, it, it just, it appears that the algorithms and, and, and rightly so, because when I worked in software, we, you know, we, we, we had to build profiles in the system in order to test our software. And so someone will say to me, but data is neutral and the algorithms are neutral and the database schema is neutral. And yes, you're right. The database doesn't know if I put the word black in the system, it doesn't know if I'm referring to the background color or a person. It doesn't know. But the people who are working on the information, they have the biases. Mm -hmm. And if the majority of the tech industry is white male, and the numbers are at 70%, Asian Mm -hmm. males are the next highest group at about 20%. So that's already 90% of the industry that Mm -hmm. reflects two genders and two ethnic backgrounds mm-hmm. or ethnic. one gender and two ethnic backgrounds thank you yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. exactly and it just it simply can't be like observation would tell us <laughs> basic observation that um people of color and i'm in my personal experience uh, because mostly it's women i guess in my friend group in my feed but like women of color have to be extremely careful which is Very why careful will see the word white spelled differently sometimes. Sometimes it's simple as YT. Yes. You know, that that question comes up sometimes in my communities. And it's it's protection again, because there is no such thing as neutral data when one gender and two ethnic backgrounds are constructing the entire mechanism essentially. That's right. These worlds. So I highly recommend people do the like fast just to get a sense of what else um, uh, shows up in their feed. Now, you've talked a bit about some of the frustration that you experience, and I share, many people share, uh, around social and our lives kind of big brothered like this, you know, Mm -hmm. data gets distorted when viewed through such a narrow lens. And when you know, one perspective is centered and the world is built off of that, right? So I can only imagine how much rage, how much grief, how much frustration you have uh, personally felt around this. And I'm curious, aside from the expressive writing, is there anything else you do that helps you to personally cope with rage, especially when you're sort of dealing with the world at large like this yes. and these large collective dilemmas that can feel so unwieldy? How do you personally deal with rage or grief? So you mentioned the writing. Um, music also helps. Mm. I also go to the gym. <laughs> and I tell you, I really beat up that spin bike. <laughs> I really do. Mm-hmm. So working out is something I have to do, mm-hmm. have to, because it allows me to refocus that energy. And the, the, other, the other part, how do I connect this? The other part of managing rage is not to get there. It, it, no, no. Rage is, rage is fine because, you know, we need to, healthy avenues to process our anger. I've learned that boundaries are so important. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I put together was something I call the white fragility experience. Because as I continue talking, I don't know why white fragility sticks to me like a bad odor. Because, mm-hmm. and I could talk about anything else, but as soon as I talk about white fragility, like it's just like people pay attention and you know 
they share my stuff. And, and it's because of an early example I had with Right Fragility back in 1994. And it just seems like this is supposed to be my thing to talk about. Mm-hmm. And so I've learned that when someone comes into my space and they are, they see and read my lived experience with racism. And the first thing they want to do is deny, dismiss, defend, tell me that I'm imagining things, tell me, no, I don't think that's the way it went. No, that can't be possible. That can't possibly be racism. Or this is what that racist person meant. Yes. <laughs> right. They probably meant it this way. That way. Right. It's like going to a play and seeing the play again. And I didn't like it the first time. I don't think I'll like it this time. So when I see act one of white fragility show up, which is defend and dismiss, I get up from my seat, I walk out the theater, and I request a refund because I am not participating, Mm -hmm. either as a viewer or as a participant. So in other words, what I mean is, as part of managing rage and anger, I've come to understand that there's not everyone who can hear my voice and Mm -hmm. take action. Mm -hmm. Some people don't even see my humanity Mm. as a black woman. So if you don't see my humanity, there's nothing I can say to convince you. So I've learned that there's certain people that my voice will get to where they will see and hear and they'll be like, you're my teacher. Those are the people I work with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Boundaries are so important. Yes. And uh, what is this White Fragility Project? How Can you talk, just tell us how people can find out more about that? So my, um, so being part of my exclusive community on Patreon isn't only about getting weekly writing prompts and then witnessing my writings, because I've had to find another place to house my writings because mm-hmm. Facebook is careless with them. Mm. So some fragile person will come along and see the word white and won't even read. Like I I posted something uh, two months back in December, 2017 about it's not okay to be white. And I talked about, don't be embarrassed of your skin color, but be embarrassed around the systems that have been built up Mm -hmm. to make you believe that there's superiority. And so it was like, it was the most, the people who showed up was so vile. Mm -hmm. Oh, it was the most, ugh. And the allies who came and did the work to try to educate, it was just, I was, they were harming my allies. It was just vile. So the post disappeared, disappeared, removed. And you can't even get it then. If you want to, yeah, I need you to, posted it and it's gone. It's gone. And I, I needed to block some people. I don't know who to block. Mm. So mm-hmm. I needed to find another venue to house my writings, my words, and Patreon has become life. So as a part, and, and as an aside, my posts reappeared, just reappeared. Just like randomly. And just like randomly. Quietly. Yeah. Quietly. No email to say, sorry. It just, re- so thank God. Cause now I know who to block. And I went through and I started mm-hmm. blocking people, but like, it's so weird. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's violence. Mm-hmm. You're taking my words that I carefully curated and you're carelessly removing them. So Patreon has become a place where I post my deepest writings to an audience that's paying to be there. Mm-hmm. You can join for as little as $3 a month or upwards to $50 a month. And you get different rewards depending on how much you contribute. But the bigger goal is to reach a certain point to help me fund a documentary on white fragility. Mm. And so white fragility is something, I, as I said before, I experienced back in 1994 as a 20-year-old. I wrote a letter to the editor after reading another article. I expressed my frustrations being a black youth in Toronto and being followed around the store and some of my friends being harassed by police. About a week later, they published a, a letter, which was in a reaction to my letter, oh. written by two white women in their 50s, and they self-identified themselves as such. They said, it's not racism. We were followed around in the stores too when we were young. Shopkeeper wanted us to, to, to produce a letter from our mom. So if you go looking for racism, you will find it. Mm. So, mm. At 20, so I, I clipped both of those letters out. And I think when I was 20, I was just happy that someone responded. Look, 
<laughs> Someone responded to my letter. I'm so influential. Because remember, in my 20s, like my ego's like inflated. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but as I'm looking at it, Carmen, I said, in, with my 40-year-old eyes, I'm like, this is white fragility. Mm-hmm. And so I started asking myself, okay, are these people still alive? Can I interview them on camera? Would they be open to it? Would the, would the editor of that newspaper be open to being interviewed? Would the columnist who wrote the column that sparked my letter, that sparked the other? And then I was like, oh my goodness, my story can be the backdrop to the larger exploration of white fragility. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. what belonging to my community does. It helps to nourish me, of course, as a writer, but mm-hmm. also helps us work towards a larger goal of producing this first documentary on the story mm. of white fragility. Mm, I love it. And it's, it's so necessary and yes. it, because it is so disappointing as a white person when, uh, when I see it in myself, when I see it in my friends, when I mm-hmm. see it in people that are supposed to be the good guys, lefty, <laughs> progressive, you right? know, mental, whatever. And it's like, no, th- yeah, I can't. I mean, it's very disheartening how much time, um, I don't spend it as much anymore, but my husband will still spend hours sometimes fighting yeah. white fragility or racism on the internet. That's yes. like, a part-time job for him because not because he's going to convince people, but because people are watching yes. people we care about, you know, who, who I self-identify as indigenous, um, as people of color, as queer, whatever it is, you know, our, my child, our child is gender fluid, transitioning trans, yeah. you know, right in the, in the mix. And so it's like, you know, these are really difficult topics and we don't think we're necessarily going to convert people, yes. but we do know that we can make it very socially uncomfortable to be oppressive, racist, or just careless and mindless about these things in public. Right. And that's why I do the ancestry work. I do it so that your your ancestry becomes more attractive than whiteness. And if more people see their ancestry is more attractive than whiteness, then whiteness becomes uncool. And now you become this backward, uncouth mm-hmm. Neanderthal. Is that the mm-hmm. word? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because we do need the social proof, right? That, yes, that like it's not, it's not cool. And, and also talking about not just the DNA, our ancestors, every one of us has racists and homosexuals mm-hmm. and uh you know intersexed and yep. you know bastard children and aborted and you know we all have these sort of scandalous secrets yes, we do and we do we are built up of the paradox of needing to contain it all yep. it's kind of it's it just kind of goes back to the you know, cast the first stone thing, right? Like Absolutely. we've Absolutely. been displaced and we've been displacers. So the ancestral work of needing to be able to heal within our own lineages, all these paradoxes and not be perpetuating them is, I mean, I think that's the most important conversation we can be having spiritually. Yes, I agree. Um, these days. Well, thank you so much for uh, enlightening us. And I'm going to put uh, your Patreon uh, links and your website links and everything in the show notes. Um, but I, I've learned so much from following you on Facebook. And so maybe we can encourage people to follow, not friend, yes. follow you wherever you are and, and, and port over to Patreon if they want to go deeper with that. But I appreciate where you've taken us today, Lisa. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Carmen. Fascinating woman, hey? I love her stories. If you'd like to be part of Lisa's Patreon community, you can go to her website, Lisa Renee Hall. That's L E E S A R E N E E H A L L dot com. If you've never heard of Patreon before, don't worry about it. It's it's just a very cool site for artists and makers and creators to have kind of a subscription service for people who want to be their patrons, people who want to be in the inner circle. You can usually choose from a, a, an entire range of price levels for as little as a few dollars a month. You can get sort of special connection uh, from the makers that you want to support. And Lisa offers expressive writing prompts for white fragility. So if that piqued your interest, I highly recommend you check out her page. 
Today, I'd like to thank my listeners in Saskatchewan, sort of gradually moving out west. And I have to admit, Saskatchewan, I have never visited your beautiful lands. But I think of you whenever I hear Wheat Kings by the Tragically Hip. I hope I'll get out there someday. Thank you so much to those who listen. I know that there's a handful of you because I see it in the show stats. So I really appreciate you spending the time. And hey, did you know that the Numinous School only opens for registration once a year? Yeah, and this year is happening June 1st to 7th. So if you're interested in securing one of the, well, there's actually less than uh, 20 spots available, you can go to my website, carmenspaniola.com, C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. And when you go to the footer, just sign up for the newsletter. Or if you go to the courses page, you can click on the Numinous School and there's a registration opening waitlist there. And I'd be happy to contact you when we open and I hope you'll consider joining. It would be very cool to have you. Until next time, take care.